Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kimaladun. This week, we presented a special series of speakers from the 2022 Camden Conference. The Camden Conference convenes annually to bring a variety of diplomats, professors, journalists, and political officials to address a topic of international political and humanitarian significance. For the 35th Camden Conference, the topic was Europe Challenged at Home and Abroad. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. For our final discussion, we bring you a two-part session. Starting off today is Senior Director of Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council, John Herbst. Introducing Ambassador Herbst today is host and Senior Editor of Marketplace Morning Report, David Brancaccio. We're next going to turn our focus to a discussion of how the U.S. the U.S. might try to respond to what is going on uh, in Ukraine, but also further views on how the U.S.-EU relationship is evolving through all of this. And we have a really important view coming up right now. Our next speaker comes to us from Washington, D.C., Ambassador John Herbst retired from the U.S. State Department after serving as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Ambassador to Uzbekistan. Following those postings, he became the coordinator of U.S. initiatives in the reconstruction and stabilization of societies transitioning from conflict or civil war. In all of these positions, Ambassador Herbst has strongly supported free elections, freedom of assembly, nonviolent protests, and human rights, all values uh, that are at play given the situation now in and around Ukraine. Ambassador Herbst is now Senior Director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council in Washington. He recently returned from Kyiv, Ukraine, and we invite him now to talk about what he learned there and share, you know, if you want, your prescription for, here was your title, the U.S. approach to managing the Kremlin challenge in Eastern Europe topic of the moment. Ambassador Herbst, it's yours. Okay, um, thank you very much. I'd like to make one point to start, which is, of course, Putin just invaded Ukraine large this past week, but he actually invaded Ukraine eight years, over eight years ago. So this is merely an escalation. And we now are at a point, and I think both Pierre and Daniela uh, made this clear in the course of their remarks, that the West is beginning to truly understand the Putin challenge. Um, I've been working on this Putin challenge since I got the Atlantic Council almost eight years ago. And it's really pretty simple. He is pursuing a provocative, revisionist foreign policy. A foreign policy that he actually kind of laid out in his famous or infamous Munich Security Conference speech in February of 2007. But he also made it crystal clear uh, in a series of conferences, which he's known to host the Valdai conferences, which are sort of like the Russian equivalent of the Munich Security Conference. And several, two of them, he had posted on the boards behind him when he spoke the following phrase, uh, new rules or no rules for international order. Meaning directly challenging the international security architecture that emerged first after World War II and then reinforced and slightly changed at the end of the Cold War. And his goals are actually very simple um, and very clear. And amazingly, he laid them out for everyone to see during this latest crisis. 
he laid them out in those two interesting treaties, draft treaties that he sent to the United States and NATO in December. And in his striking, even bizarre speech uh, last Monday, where he laid out his aims in Ukraine. Those aims are essentially to restore, if not fully Russian control, then major influence in the entire post-Soviet space, which happens to include three NATO allies, the Baltic states, as well as in the Warsaw Pact, which includes a whole bunch of other NATO allies. So he has been pursuing a sharp challenge to major American and European interests uh, for over a decade with his war on Georgia, his taking of Crimea in 14. And one of the reasons he's been doing this is not just that these are his objectives, but he's gotten very little pushback or until recently, very little pushback. He took Georgia and um, there were tiny, tiny sanctions. Um, Sarkozy, then the president of France, established the procedure for the uh, de-escalation. And of course, the Russians violated it um, to this day with no consequences. He took Crimea in 2014, and there were sanctions, but they were laughable, and they were also ignored, as the famous Siemens uh, turbines going to Crimea demonstrated. Only after they began the Russian war, the covert war in Donbass, did we begin to respond with some seriousness. Um, the Americans put down serious sanctions in July of 14. And by the way, the Donbass operation began in April. And the Europeans were kind of reluctant even then. Only after the shootdown of MH17, the civilian aircraft, did the Europeans go in with large sanctions. But still, that was very good. The first time Putin faced real consequences for his revisionist foreign policy. And of course, those sanctions on the EU part, a work, a result of really good coordination between the US and the EU, I might add, uh, were, have been renewed every six months since, uh, to some Russian surprise. Uh, but the, I would say there's still incomplete understanding in the West, both in Washington and in Western Europe, of the need to respond strongly to Putin was evident in the big lethal weapons debate in 2014, 20, actually 2015, 2016. And full disclosure, I was one of the eight authors of an Atlantic Council report that came out just before the Munich Security Conference in February 15 that argued strongly for sending, quote, defensive lethal weapons to Ukraine. Biden didn't do it uh, because he didn't understand the stakes in Ukraine and Europe. He famously or infamously said that Russia was merely a regional power. Um, and the Europeans wanted no part of it. Trump, to his credit, wound up sending, sending javelins to Kiev in um, late 2017. But the point is, that whole debate showed how we didn't really understand the danger. Policy under Biden. Biden took the White House as someone well-versed in our interest and in policy towards Russia and Ukraine. He had a reputation as being tough on the Kremlin. And I thought our policy was going to become very good from day one. But I was wrong. Uh, the policy from the start of the Biden administration uh, until about a month ago was actually conflicted. On the one hand, Biden and his team understood that allowing Moscow to dominate Ukraine uh, would be a disaster for us. Good. So there was a need to respond. On the other hand, they had a fatuous policy objective of creating stable and predictable relations with Moscow, a phrase you heard all the time. And 
this was the Biden way of doing something which was considered laughable in Washington policy circles, to have a reset with Moscow. And of course, you all know, at least most of you know, that Angela Stentz has written all about how administration after administration going back to Clinton sought this objective, and each time it failed. But the Biden team was heading in that direction. And so there was this tension between these two strains, you might say, of Biden foreign policy. We saw it in the spring of last year when Moscow did the dress rehearsal for its current new invasion of Ukraine, not first time invasion of Ukraine. They massed about 100,000 troops, a little bit less, on Ukraine's border. And Biden's team responded immediately and strongly. Every senior national security official in the US government called their counterpart in Ukraine. Uh, General Mealy, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called General Gerasimov, uh, the head of the, joint, the general staff in Moscow, to lay down some warnings. And Moscow, as we all know, um, sent its troops away from the borders in the spring. But at the same time that they had that strong and necessary response to the Kremlin intimidation, Jake Sullivan was on the phone with Patrushev to begin the process of having the Geneva summit. And while I am a firm believer in talking, the Russians interpreted that as a sign of weakness. And something happened after that, which demonstrates my point. Uh, starting in late April last year, we had a string of cyber attacks in the United States, including a couple, one on uh, meat products, the other on um, oil, that created political problems for the Biden administration. The Biden administration's reaction to that was feckless. First, they ignored it. Then when they were challenged, they said, well, you know, these could be, these could be private hackers in Russia. As if private hackers in Russia creating political problems in the United States would not escape the notice of the FSB and the GRU. Finally, finally, under pressure here, political criticism here, um, Biden began to respond to this. This became the principal subject in Geneva. Biden laid out a very tough position in Geneva. And even people like me were pleased with that, except the Geneva summit was in the middle of June. On our July 4 weekend, we faced another string of cyber attacks. So Biden's tough words produced no real positive reaction in Moscow. And there too, it took a couple of days for the Biden administration to react to these latest provocations. This continued through the fall, and I won't go into any further because I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the point I'm driving here is that the Kremlin saw a weakness, and this was part of the Biden team's effort, feckless, to establish those stable and predictable relations with a serial provocateur whose principal policy was designed to undermine critical American interests. So we come to the fall, right? And once again, the Kremlin assembles all these troops on Ukraine's borders. And the Biden team reaction was very good, very fast. They began to background the press in late October about what was happening and expressing their real concerns. They send our CIA director, Bill Burns, to Moscow in like the second week of November to express our concerns and lay out some warnings. Uh, Burns is basically uh, shut down by, by, the, by Putin. In other words, it doesn't, he doesn't get through. He's a smart guy, a friend of mine, a longtime colleague, and a former ambassador to Russia. Uh, and he comes back and reports this. This happens roughly two or three days before the Ukrainian foreign minister, Kuleba, comes to Washington. In 
In the course of that visit, the United States goes public with the things they were putting in the press on background, which is you have this major Russian buildup. It looks like they're heading to a, a major, major escalation of their current war against Ukraine. And it's probably going to come in late January or February. They also lay out, I would say, an impressive three-part response to this. Well, I should say impressive at face value, not quite as good on closer inspection. One, major sanctions on Moscow if it happens. Two, plussing up NATO's forces in the East if it happens. Three, arms to Ukraine if it happens. Now, why do I say that's not impressive, but just uh, okay? Because the last two, to be effective, should not have been for after Moscow invades. It should have been for right now. Meaning, you're not going to have a deterrent impact on Moscow if the weapons you sent to Ukraine only arrive after their major escalation. Ditto with the plus up of American forces in the eastern uh, part of NATO, meaning the Baltic states, Romania, Poland, and so on. Now, why that, why that hesitation? I think that's related, again, to this notion of, well, we want to kind of improve the relationship with Moscow. We want to park that relationship so we can deal with the greater problem in Beijing. Also, we see a repeat of exactly what they did in the spring. Just as they lay out these tough conditions, Jake gets on the phone again with Patrushev to begin the process that led to the virtual summit in December. So all of these things, on the one hand, suggest, again, we understood that Moscow going large into Ukraine is a, is a geopolitical nightmare, and also a political nightmare at home for Biden. On the other hand, we still have this notion that somehow we're going to reach an understanding with the bad boy in the Kremlin. And again, the bad boy in the Kremlin is drawing the conclusion, cyber contributed, the Afghanistan fiasco withdrawal contributed to it, that he could push the United States around. Okay. Uh, we, oh, never mind we, the administration received some criticism in the United States, uh, especially from the Republicans, but also some reservations on the Democrat side too in Congress, where there's also strong support for Ukraine, that about the inadequacies of that three-partite response. So finally, literally about a month ago, maybe four and a half weeks ago, it was a Saturday, uh, so I think it was actually five weeks ago, the Biden administration decides, yes, we're gonna start sending those weapons, and yes, we're gonna start plussing up NATO's East. Although um, the political analyst and the skeptic in me says, the principal reason for the decision being taken at that time was the disastrous Biden press conference, where he talked about a small incursion by Russia as something perhaps a little bit less ominous or troublesome, for which he was properly slammed. So we begin to do that. And I would say since then, US policy has been very good with one, and I'll, I'll come back to one reservation a little bit later. Uh, the policy then is, again, we're sending weapons to Ukraine. We're putting more forces in NATO's east. Of course, we're working with our partners on this. Uh, and then, of course, despite all these things, um, you have that bizarre Putin press conference, uh, or should be addressed to the nation last Monday. And then the big invasion starts, uh, what was it, Wednesday night, Washington time. Uh, here too, we have a relatively fast reaction by the administration on sanctions. Uh, 
some reservations about going whole hog, in part because of the desire to consult with the allies and with the partners, EU being the partner here of the most importance. Uh, but interestingly, and uh, Pierre and Daniela referred to this, we began to see a true change in Europe among the Europeans who in the past have been reluctant to take strong measures against Moscow as a result of this major invasion. So you had this peculiar 24 hour period and literally like yesterday, no, today's Sunday. So Friday and Saturday where the Europeans jump ahead of us on issues like kicking Russia out of, out of SWIFT. And this enables the US then the Biden administration to go forward in the right way because I think they were held back on moving on SWIFT before that because they were concerned especially about the French and German reaction. Uh, also, also, uh, it's worth noting that the last time a senior US official used that fatuous phrase, stable and predictable regarding our goals towards Moscow was in early January, Tony Blinken said it. I don't think you'll hear it ever again, but it just shows you how late they held on to this E-Day fix, which was truly dangerous to the current situation. Okay, um, you may have seen me, although no reason why anyone had been paying attention when I was not speaking, I'd be leaning forward some uh, while Pierre and Daniela were talking. That's because I was I'm in a, a group exchange on the big events that um, David mentioned uh, before I started to speak. The really big event is, is I think Zelensky willing to talk is important, but the big event is the Russian nuclear threat. And if you saw a picture as I did when I was leaning forward, of Putin talking with his defense minister Shoigu and his chief military guy Gerasimov, what you note is that both Shoigu and Gerasimov look extremely uncomfortable. And if you were paying attention, and I don't even know why the Kremlin did this, it's really interesting, it's really bizarre. If you were paying attention to the national, the Russian national security meeting earlier in the week, where Putin's decided, making the case for going in large into Ukraine, and you see how uncomfortable everybody else is, even as saying, yes, of course, uh, Mr. Putin, of course, President Putin, let's do this. How uncomfortable they feel. That's because when Putin decided to go into Ukraine, he was pulling the tablecloth off the table, somehow hoping that the issues were gonna remain in place. And everyone else around him understood that this was a serious, serious gamble. And if you've been paying attention to the news reports over the past four days, and it's hard not to, you know that the Russians are not doing very well. The Ukrainians are fighting very effectively. And this is dangerous for Putin. And also, Putin looking at the reaction, especially in Europe and especially in Germany. One thing that David did not mention, which is very important, and I, I woke up to this news today, is that Germans are greatly increasing defense spending and it looks like they're crossing the magical 2% on defense spending, which the US has been pushing for for a long, long time. This is extraordinary. This is extraordinary. And the Germans finally deciding that Nord Stream 2 should be kaput is extraordinary. Nord Stream 2 was a disgrace for Germany. And uh, some of you may know, I've been a very sharp critic of the Biden administration's rolling over for the Germans on this. A disgrace for the Biden administration. Because what Nord Stream 2 did was buy the Kremlin or to get by from an even more interest, excuse me, influence in Germany. Ostpolitik worked against German and Western interests. And finally, the Germans seem to be realizing it, thank God. Okay, so what happens next? 
Uh, besides the report about the raising of nuclear, that the Putin once again waving the nuclear threat, there are also credible reports, not that this will happen, but the Russians may be using, ready to do some truly barbaric things in Ukraine. Uh, I suspect that virtually everyone in Russia would be appalled by that, with the exception of the guy who makes the decisions. But I just saw a report again leaning forward about something called a thermobarbaric, thermobark, excuse me, thermobark, which happens to be a barbaric bomb, which sucks the oxygen out of the room, so to speak, which the Kremlin may be considering employing in Ukraine. Uh, there'd be extraordinary problems if they were to do that, but well, certainly a lot of Ukrainians would die were that to happen. Uh, my sense is that it's critical for the West not to be intimidated by the nuclear threat. I've been saying this a lot lately, that the Soviet Union was a much greater danger to the, the West than, than Putin's Russia. It was much more powerful. And the US and our NATO allies managed to defend critical interests twice in Berlin in, in 1948 and 61, and of course in Cuba in 62, when we had this danger of a, of a nuclear exchange. Because the nuclear exchange is obviously every bit as dangerous to Moscow as it is to the West. And we can't be intimidated. And I suspect there are people in Russia who understand that, including very powerful people. So we need to make sure that we do all that we can. We're not talking about now having a shooting war with Russia over Ukraine to defeat Putin in Ukraine, because we should have no doubts, especially given his behavior the past week, that his sites go to NATO members, especially the very vulnerable Baltic states. And we need to uh, stay the course. One last point in my 20 seconds. Uh, China, Russia is a problem. I've said for a long time that yes, China is the greater long-term threat, but given Putin's habit of risk-taking, we have to defeat the shorter-term threat in order to deal more properly with the longer-term threat. You can be sure if we let Putin have his way in Ukraine, we increase the odds that China goes after Taiwan. Thank you. John, thank you very much. Our next speaker, Dr. Othon Anastasakis, is speaking to us from London today, where he's a professor at Oxford University and director of Southeast European Studies. Dr. Anastasakis will explore the political landscape of Europe, and in particular, the challenges to democratic institutions and the rule of law that we're facing. He closely follows the politics of countries on the southern and eastern periphery of Europe and studies how external actors such as Russia influence European politics at many levels. Althan, welcome to the conference, and we look forward to hearing more on the question that we're posing to you, which European democracies are vulnerable to illiberal challenges and why? Thank you very much, David, and uh, thank you to the organizers. Uh, it is um, such an amazing time uh, for us speaking these issues, and obviously our hearts and minds go to our friends in Ukraine, uh, because from this European perspective, this is devastating and totally absurd what is happening. I will be focusing on um, illiberalism because that's a very, very big topic in terms of uh, how the European Union works as a democracy or as a union of democracies. And if we go back um, uh, 30 years more ago, at the start of the end of history, democracy was believed to be the only possible way forward. In this general post-1989 euphoria, the European Union had a special place as an anchor of democratic politics, 
but also as a transformative agent of change. And under the aegis of the EU, the post-1989 European continent was to be composed by older, experienced Western democracies, by the consolidated post-authoritarian democracies in Southern Europe, themselves having transitioned uh, during the 1970s, and the prospective then post-totalitarian democracies in Central and Eastern Europe. The latter eventually rewarded with EU membership in 2004 and 2007. And for many years, the EU projected itself as a transformative power through its enlargement and with a potential normative impact beyond this border too, in soft power around the world. So for their part, their accession of Central and East European post-communist countries made impressive progress towards democratic pluralist politics in the spirit of the EU's political criteria. Now today, three or more decades later, the picture is different. And during the last 10 years in particular, there is a growing discussion on illiberalism and backsliding in Europe. To be sure, illiberalism and national protectionism are a global trend nowadays. Yet our questions today focuses on whether the European Union of liberal democracies is really threatened by illiberalism and backsliding. Some countries in particular, like Hungary and Poland, give us this impression that illiberalism is growing inside the European Union, themselves foster children of transition to democracy during the 1990s and the 2000s. And to address this question, I will be asking three sub-questions. First, is backsliding an exclusively Central and East European phenomenon of post-communist states or something more widespread, uh, something continental? Second, what is happening to the EU's transformative power and its ability to sustain the rule of law and fight against illiberal tendencies? And thirdly, what about beyond Europe and what is the impact of Russia, Turkey, China on European democracies? Now let's start with democratic backsliding. Many scholarly analysis, as well as democracy-rated agencies, are observing the rise of illiberalism in the European continent, mostly in certain Eastern and Southeastern Europe. And um, in 2016, one of our most prominent Oxford scholars, Nancy Bermeo, was among the first to coin the term democratic backsliding, observing the process of democratic erosion on a global scale. After two decades of democratic progress, the guidance of the European Union the talk in Europe was about deconsolidation of democracy, de-democratization, or de-Europeanization, all of which stood opposite to the previous dominant paradigm of transition to democracy and democratic consolidation, with democracy becoming the only game in town. But with the consecutive crisis hitting the European Union, the legitimacy and effectiveness of European democratic governance in the words of Vivian Schmidt from Boston University, suffered from lower levels of trust from its citizens. But should we be totally surprised? Was this transition a deterministic process towards democratic politics? The reality was and each much more complex. Since the early years of transition in the 1990s, scholars were revisiting the transition paradigm and introducing in our vocabulary democracies with adjectives, such as defective, hybrid, procedural, exclusive, or tutelary democracies, to name a few, to express this illusion of the unilaterality of the transition process and to indicate the constraints along the way. But even in this broader context of transition troubles, 
there were some countries in the European Union who were negotiating their accession and were considered successful democratizers, including the Baltic states and, more impressively, Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic. These were countries that were genuinely changing and were ticking all the right boxes of political conditionality in terms of democratic criteria, which the EU and the national elites had set for themselves. Separation of power, stability of institutions, rule of law, respect for human rights, and so on and so forth. It goes without saying that democracy promotion from the United States contributed to the success of this goal even more. These countries were rewarded with their accession. And indeed, the first part of the 2000s was the pinnacle of successful political transformation of post-communist Europe, including the post-conflict Balkans even, themselves coming out of the Yugoslav wars. So as we know, the global financial crisis of 2008 was the starting point of a series of existential crises for the European Union, started with the Eurozone, followed by the refugee crisis, Brexit, the pandemic, and the crisis with Russia, all affecting the political stability of many countries in the periphery of Europe in the South and the East. It has been eight years since 2014 and the landmark speech by Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, when he declared his intention to build a liberal state based on national values within the confines of the European Union, which became the prototype of national populism within the EU. Hungary itself had suffered a tremendous impact from the 2008 crisis, which led the socialists away from power in 2010. And since the start of Orban in power, a former liberal and democratizer himself, sought to undermine any checks and balances in his democracy, weakening media freedom, independence of judiciary, or harming the rule of law. Since then, Orban was repeatedly elected in power, consolidating his illiberalism at home even further. After Hungary, Poland, under the ruling Law and Justice Party, and the leadership of Jaroslav Kaczynski in power since 2015, emulated policies from Hungary towards the judiciary or the media, and strengthening thus the illiberal front within the European Union. More recently, Orban Brand has made more strides in the Balkans, where Hungarian leader is reaching out to build close relations with former Yugoslav states in the Balkans. In Serbia, a country not yet a member state of the European Union, Another case of a strongman, Alexander Vucic, has consolidated his power using similar methods with the open template and building those relations with antagonizing powers, Russia and China. And last but not least, Turkey's politics during the last years have turned to so impressively illiberal that it is difficult to remember that Tayyip Erdogan started as a liberal politician, introducing democratic changes in Turkey's rigid and exclusionary Kemalist system and negotiating Turkish way into the European Union. Today, the system in Turkey is fully presidential, governed by a powerful leader, having subjected his country into repression of freedoms and moving closer to Putin's form of power, with whom also he holds personal relations. In all of these cases, we witness a wave of autocratization, whose main element is the executive aggrandizement by manipulating the very institutions and procedures that are essential in pluralist politics. In other words, there is no need to have coup d'etats anymore or abrupt breakdown of democracy, but instead, through the achieving electoral majorities, the rulers proceed with the manipulation of electoral laws, voting procedures, constitutional changes, 
that give them more power, control of the media and the judiciary. In all these cases, the strongman rule of the socially conservative parties, they use nationalistic slogans, they distrust media and education, and they react to the hegemony of Brussels. They are all part of a turn towards right-wing politics, which benefit from fragmented center and center-left oppositions. The level playing field is skewed, and there is unequal access to the media resources and state institutions that allows, that does not allow for an easy change in power. So majoritarian politics are the rule of the game, and they are the legitimating factor for the sustainability of illiberal rulings. Now, on April 3rd, in a month's time from now, there are national elections in Hungary, the significance of which cannot be underestimated. If Orban loses the elections, one should allow oneself to have hopes for a reversal of the illiberal policies. On the other hand, if Orban wins this election, there will be a further boost to Europe's illiberalism, as this will be a successful case on how to sustain um, in power a long-running illiberal ruler. Ironically, in April 3, Serbia is also holding elections, which the current leader is expected to win. For these cases of autocratization, the focus is often mostly on the leadership and the hope that if elections manage to bring the end in power of these rulers, things will change. Having said that, due to the long stay in power of some of these leaders, the question is to what degree the system has been corroded and what it takes to reverse the process. Europe's democratic vulnerability is not seen just in the cases of the autocratization that I mentioned, but also in other cases which are not defined by their strongmen, but more as political stagnation where institutions never function to their intended standards and state captured media and freedom, problems with the rule of law became embedded features of the transition process. Many Balkan states are in a stagnation mode in their national politics, which is what they have termed it as transitocracy, a never-ending state of transition that sees their politics going one step forward and one step backward, and where the introduction of institutions and adoption of reforms are not followed by real implementation as a result of resistance and veto players from within. In post-conflict societies of the Western Balkans, democratic politics are affected by the legacies of conflict with ethno-national party politics and ethno-nationalist agendas affecting the course of pluralist politics. In many of these stagnating cases, one sees from time to time popular mobilization, civic protests, pro-democracy movements against the excesses and abuses of the executive and corruption. Bulgaria and Romania in particular are two cases where we have seen significant protests lasting for months and leading to the delegitimating and sometimes fall of governing parties from power. But is backsliding and stagnation a matter of a vulnerable post-communist periphery versus the democratically secure Western European core? Or does our understanding reflect a selection bias in perceiving illiberalism as a central and East European phenomenon when in fact we see the challenge of democratic politics, maybe in the older democracies of Europe as well. It is true that most Western nations are affected by far-right politics, which are against European integration, against migration, they're socially conservative, and seeking to exploit crisis environment. 
But this is not something new. Far-right parties existed as part of the political spectrum since the 1960s, when the new right emerged back then, with moments of relative electoral success from time to time from the fringes. They are assisted by crisis, and they have the potential to affect wider democratic politics through disruption, either as challengers of mainstream politics or as influencers of political discourses of mostly center-right-wing parties. The debate on populism became a massive theme during the 2010s when Europe came to recognize the phenomenon as the biggest threat to mainstream center-right and center-left democratic politics. One version was the populism experienced in Greece, which was the product of a very deep crisis and of frustrated citizens who were willing to succumb into the lure of the radical left anti-austerity populism of the government of Syriza. Another form of populism was seen in Italy, a country no stranger to populist politics since the times of Berlusconi in the 1990s, only this time in the form of techno-populism as the ambivalent relationship between populism and technocracy and alienating the system from the more traditional left-right division. The most surprising form of Western populism took place in the older parliamentary democracy in Europe, in Britain, in the shadow of Brexit, of fake news, polarization, and permissive and often extra-parliamentary prime ministerial scheming under Boris Johnson. All these Western European populist cases share a convenient Euroscepticism, a cynicism towards domestic institutions, which, however, prove more resilient and protective of the system and avoid fall to autocratization, which is more evident in the Eastern countries, where populism is connected with more ethnic differences, cultural fears, and identity wars, and is more amenable to exclusionary forms of autocratization, illiberalism, and conspiracy theories, and where weaker institutions have a lower capacity to react to the abuses of power. But what is the EU's response to all of this? What is happening with the EU's political criteria and conditionality, its stronger instrument for pressure and its transformative potential? Political conditionality has been at the heart of the EU's approach towards prospective member states, the alpha and the omega for the decision to accept them as member states. Again, the difficulty addressing backsliding should not be totally surprising, as there was already a concern after the 2004 enlargement with the oldest Eastern European countries that the EU did not have the means to monitor further political progress after accession. Once the countries became EU member states, they stopped being scrutinized by the club as they became members of the club themselves. This was somewhat addressed with the premature accession of Bulgaria and Romania in 2007, where the EU established for the first time a post-accession conditionality for these two countries that were not considered to be fully prepared when they entered the EU. It therefore introduced post-accession mechanisms of monitoring their rule of law and made funding conditional upon the appropriate uh, implementation of the rule of law. This was an instrument that came to be used on various occasions with some positive results in some cases, but not fully. However, since the start of the Eurozone crisis, the EU was criticized for downsizing its own political standards for the benefit of other priorities. The survival of the Eurozone and the strict economic conditionality towards Greece and other Southern European economies jeopardized their political systems, especially in the case of Greece. We saw the rise of the criminal far-right Golden Dawn party there, 
or in Italy, where it caused big political instability with the rise of extreme there too. Meanwhile, the way that the refugee crisis was sorted uh, with a special deal with Turkey to keep the refugees outside EU territory reflected the EU's own democratic deficits in the rise of far-right parties in Western Europe and in the refusal of illiberal regimes, Hungary and Poland, to accept migrants, thus increasing their ethnopopulism even further. Aiming at keeping refugees outside the EU territory, the EU was willing to turn a blind eye towards asylum practices that did not respect conventions and human rights, as well as allowing the autocratic uh, Erdogan in Turkey to strengthen his own power and authority and to blackmail the EU occasionally. Finally, faced with geopolitical challenges from Russia, the EU decreased its democratic monitoring of accession countries in the Western Balkans, promoting what has been termed as stabilitocracy in working with strong men in the region with geopolitical concerns in mind. Faced with the illiberal outcomes of the downsizing of its own political conditionality, especially in Hungary and Poland, the European Commission during the last two years has re-emphasized at a rhetorical level its, um, uh, its uh, affection for the rule of law and developed its monitoring instruments and tied funding with the practice of the rule of law. While the EU has now acquired a toolbox that can put pressure, including the fear of sanctions or the shaming tactics to countries that do not respect the rule of law, the EU does not have effective means of promoting the actual implementation of rule of law in the countries themselves, lacking coercive mechanisms, which are not part of its responsibility, and having to rely on local elites to implement these changes. It does have at its disposal the suspension of membership, but this is the ultimate option, and the EU does not seem to go that far, even with the often cited case of Hungary, the most important backslider. Again, here the EU has been criticized for its selection bias and for double standards in focusing on Central and East European countries, but not being attentive enough to rule of law issues in all the member states where illicit practices or corruption are also taking place. And finally, what is the impact of Europe of an increasingly growing illiberal world order? Notwithstanding the drawbacks and risks, still the European continent is democratic, mainstream politics are party politics dominated by mainstream parties of center-right, center-left, alienation in power occurs without problems, EU templates exist on how institutions should function, and a clear sense on how liberal democracy should operate. Undeniably, democracy is being perceived as the most attractive mode of governance in Europe. More and more, however, the EU is downsizing its global soft power, being unable to have a transformative potential beyond its own borders. Faced with a different world of multipolarity and autocratic rulers, the EU is becoming more transactional in its approach with outside actors. Moreover, it feels that the reverse process of external transformative liberalism affects the politics of some European states, making the fight against the liberals even harder. Starting with the US, the years of the Trump administration have been a traumatic experience of political alienation from a traditional partner. Indeed, most of the autocrats in Europe found an anchor and support in the President Trump, who, as we know, hoped for the disintegration of the European project altogether. It is no coincidence that leaders 
such as Erdogan, Orban, Vucic, and even Jansa in Slovenia, were all upset by the downfall of Trump from EU leadership. Biden's Democracy Summit was therefore a welcome event that put back the US as a promoter of democracy, a cornerstone of US foreign policy, and a common ideological link with Europe, and put more firmly in the radar screen the conflict between democracy and autocracy on a global scale, the most characteristic example of this fight we are currently witnessing in Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine. While this is true, and the division is a significant phenomenon, Biden's summit had another selection bias problem on which countries to invite which were democracies or not. It was therefore a paradox that um, when Biden uh, decided to invite Poland, but not Hungary, and raised questions as to which were the criteria of inclusion and exclusion from the democratic club. Russia, for its part, is the epitome of autocracy at home and abroad, and its infiltration of the domestic politics of other countries has taken new heights and reached new levels beyond the direct intervention to put puppet governments in its post-Soviet neighborhood, Putin has managed to infiltrate democratic politics further afield through hybrid means, including misinformation, fake news, creation of pro-Russian political parties, staging coups, or interventions in the name of orthodox religious solidarity, and creating energy dependencies, of course. The secret is not to destroy democracies from a Russian perspective, but to corrode internal politics and create discords and disagreements, a strategy which has met so far with a degree of success in Southeastern Europe, but also in other places in Europe. China, for its part, is coming with its economic influence and long-term strategy in crucial fields such as digital um, uh, economy, environment, infrastructure, trade. China hails its own success in delivering prosperity and stability without the impediments of protests and opposition politics. It has adopted a different conception of what it calls democracy, which links politics with economic results. Interesting that both Putin and Xi use the term democracy to describe their own systems at home, pushing the discussion into the realm of geopolitics and negating EU's pretensions of democratic hegemony in the world and European cosmopolitanism in their effort to promote an alternative world political order. Interesting that most autocrats feel the need to speak in the name of democracy and fake democracy as well. As my final point, one interesting observation, I think, is that in the European context, the normative commitment to democracies may be at risk. Given that citizens are becoming more apolitical and more interested in results from governments, and the question becomes whether democracies can deliver better results for their citizens, there is more and more an emphasis on the effectiveness of democratic politics to deliver on economic, environmental, technological, infrastructural, or pandemic results. More often than not, Autocratic regimes try to present themselves as better able to lure the hearts and minds of people in Europe through impending funding and investment, which is not complicated by the cumbersome rules and procedures and avoid the difficult conditions of the European Union. In some ways then, 
the understanding for some people goes beyond the liberal versus illiberal debate to the legitimacy and effectiveness of the system. So then the task of democratic politics is to convince their people that they can deliver better than any other system on the current needs of their citizens. Thank you very much, um, David. Awesome, thank you. Fascinating. Hey, Othan, just a quick thing before we really launch into it. I want the audience to fully understand. Um, was it Orban who actually embraced the term illiberal? I think he used the term early on, is what you said, and I think that's my reading. Um, there was obviously in this scholarly bibliography the term illiberal democracy there, but he was the first that used it as a political system within Europe in a uh, very famous speech that he did in 2014 on how to create a liberal state uh, within Europe and taking examples from Russia and China as well. John, let me just start with you to follow up on one of your uh, later points. Uh, I mean, you're very focused and, and, and candid. We should not be intimidated by this nuclear threat today. Um, that means, you know, don't back down. But are you talking about something else? Like, can you think, is there a more specific response to him for the second time saying the word nuclear? Well, he said it actually a whole bunch of times. And in fact, it's, it's worth understanding why. Uh, the Soviet Union had dominance in conventional weapons, especially in Europe, which was the main theater. Today, the United States, and of course, NATO makes this even more true, have a vast superiority to Russia conventionally. That's why in Russian defense doctrine, the, when, this has been described by Westerners as a policy of escalate to de-escalate. They threaten nuclear because they understand their weakness conventionally. As for the current situation, um, yes, we, we simply don't back down. I mean, I am not a defense guy, uh, but I understand the importance of power to diplomacy. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've suggested to people who know more about this than I do, is this a time to consider DEFCON 3? There are four defensive statuses for U.S. forces. The normal one is the lowest one, DEFCON 4. Going to DEFCON 3 would be a way of saying to Putin, you ain't going to intimidate us with your wild threats. It also, and this is very important, it's a signal to Shoigu, the defense minister, Garasimov, and others in the Russian elite that, um, you know, we're not, we're not to be messed with. And that gives reason to them to consider ways to rein in their boss. Well, one, one more point here. If Putin fails in Ukraine, and I'm pretty sure he will, uh, his future in Russia is, is the question. Yeah, we're gonna have, we have a bunch of questions about that, that idea. I wanna get to that. Yeah. I mean, if we went to DEFCON 3, I wasn't even aware that's a real thing. It's in all the movies. But uh, stakes get high for mistakes, misunderstandings. DEFCON, there's, there's DEFCON 3, there's DEFCON 2, and there's DEFCON 1. I'm old enough to remember, although I was just a graduate student, us going to DEFCON 3 during the, during the Yom Kippur War. Mm. It's just a caution to the Kremlin that says, we have nukes too. Because some people just say, they sort of go like this when, when they hear that sort of suggestion. Um, if we don't understand that we that you know we we have nukes too. Putin can intimidate us into giving up serious interests of ours. The same game he's playing right now with Ukraine, he could play with the Baltics, or with Poland, or with Romania. Othan, so 
what would <laughs> this is so unfair for me to ask, but if you were to help write a prescription for putting some backbone into Europe's desire to have all of its countries live by its own core values. You talked about lack of coercive methods at its disposal, other than kicking a country out of the EU, the nuclear option, as we would say in the US. What are things that Europe should consider to uh, getting tougher with the countries that don't live up to what should be European values? This is indeed a very difficult one because um, there is a combination of uh, politics and geopolitics in our current uh, global environment. But, and, and so I can understand sometimes why there is a big dilemma in how the EU has to operate with the politics and how much critical it can be. I'll give you an example now, for instance. Uh, when the EU sees Poland being so receptive of all the refugees the main border actually that is receiving the bulk uh, of refugees uh, from Ukraine. Um, will the European Union want to be critical of rule of law problems in Poland? I mean, that is a very difficult question. But what I have found out in terms of how the European Union operates, I can understand the circumstances when these dilemmas become more difficult to address. But at the same time, there are gaps in how consistent the European is with its own political conditionality. So there is one thing being constantly consistent that political conditionality matters and is not going to be sacrificed. And of course, you know, in difficult moments, you have to, you know, cut some corners. But at the same time, you just have to be consistently persistent that this is political conditionality that matters. And I tell you another thing, the case of Hungary, for instance, one of the reasons why Hungary also got away with it is because they had many uh, votes uh, within the European Christian Democratic family. As long as Orban and his party feeders were part of the you know, wider uh, uh, European Christian democracy, then they were dependent on these votes. They were the dominant kind of party family. It's a good thing that finally they just decided to cut the umbilical cord with him and you know, let him go away. Obviously, now he operates with the fringes, but he cannot go very far, obviously, with parties you know, of the extreme right. Um, so there need to be some tough decisions sometimes, and not just a calculation of political costs. This is where I believe that the EU should definitely be consistent with its politics and political conditionality. Um, Virginia from the University of Maine uh, makes this point in the form of a question. President Trump was impeached for the first time by the House of Representatives for withholding defense funding from Ukraine. What message did that send to Vladimir Putin and how do we see it playing out today? Do you think the previous administration's different posture uh, when it comes to this issue um, is still reverberating? John? Oh, uh, I don't think, well, if, if the Russians were analyzing our political system correctly, they would have seen the whole incident with Trump as evidence of strong bipartisan support in Congress for Ukraine. Um, Trump had to back down from that nasty play, not just because it was exposed, but because he was hearing from Mitch McConnell, Rob Johnson, Lindsey Graham, prominent senators, you don't do that. So he stepped back. Uh, I don't think it has more repercussions than that. I mean, I think in, in terms of this crisis, I think that's ancient history.
to, to just maybe codify this historic moment in history that we're all talking, um, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, as Othon mentioned, it was the end of history. Um, and then we entered the post-Cold War world. That was what we've all lived in. And if you're under 32 years old, that's the world that you've owned, that's the only world that you've known. Uh, have events of the past couple of days, is it the end of the post-world era and we've just entered something brand new? Or Othon, maybe you might argue that the move toward these illiberal systems was already the new phase. Well, what do you think? I think that's a fantastic uh, question, David, because um, I've been thinking a, a lot on how I've been looking at all these developments myself. I mean, I've written extensively on the impact of Russia, especially you know in the Balkan region that I know uh, also um, uh, very well. And, um, you know, me personally, I was always ready to undermine the threat, to always think that, you know, the West is probably exaggerating the infiltration of Russia. I have to say that during the last two days, my conception of what's happening has, uh, you know, really been upset. I mean, you know, there's a revolution inside of me in seeing things, you know, really differently in the sense that, first of all, this is a very, very big danger to our political system, to our geopolitics, to the way that we understand the European continent and the territory. So that's a very big threat. And also to the way that I understand defense as well. I mean, you know, I'm a pacifist and I was always thought that, you know, you, you countries spend more, at, at least I know in Greece that spends a, a lot of money on, on its defense. But you know now you know we are expecting that Ukraine actually, since uh, the West cannot get in with armaments and people, uh, NATO actually, uh, you know, to help Ukraine, we are expecting Ukraine to fight for us, to fight the European war on its own, and that you know leads me to believe that first of all there is a very real danger, and secondly that defense matters. So I'm just looking at things totally different, to be honest with you. All right. As a broadcaster, the need to what we call hit the clock is probably part of my DNA. Hitting the clock means the need to wrap it up right at the predetermined moment in the day. Uh, it's time to wrap Camden 2022. Thank all of our speakers over the three days, especially those of you here today. Thank all of you in the audience. Thank the team here at the Camden Conference, Jim Ruddy, Charlotte Singleton, who uh, wrangled all our guests, Karen Look, uh, at, the, at the top of the operation. And so take care, be safe, and here's to next year, hopefully together in Camden. Take care. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. The extended version of this discussion is available at camdenconference.org, as well as all of the 2022 Camden Conference talks and panel discussions. This concludes our Speaking in Maine series of the Camden Conference. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kim Ladoon. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.